0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so we've been studying the book of Genesis. Genesis is a book of beginnings. We learned about the beginning of the world, the beginning of the human race, the beginning of the separation between God and humanity. We've also learned about the beginning of God's rescue plan. God was doing something about the barrier that came between us and him when we turned away from him. At the heart of that rescue plan we've seen is God is forming the Jewish people. We've learned about God's call to Abraham, the first ever Hebrew. And he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you this promised land and through you, And your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. I'm going to protect you. We saw Abraham's family. Three quarters of Genesis is about Abraham and his family. We learned about Abraham and his life, his son Isaac. We learned about Isaac and his son Jacob. And last week, we learned about Jacob and the beginning of his family. Now, in case you weren't here last week, I'll try to recap a few of the relevant pieces that we'll need for the story this week about Jacob's family. Last week, we saw Jacob wanted to marry a girl named Rachel, and he went into his wedding night, and when he woke up, unfortunately, his father-in-law had pulled a sister swap on him, (laughs) and he was staring across the bed at Rachel's older sister, Leah. Well, he still gets to marry Rachel a week later, but he's stuck with both sisters now. And as part of this deal, he ends up having to marry Rachel's maid and Leah's maid. So he ends up, he wanted one wife, he ends up with four. We saw that he had 11 sons and one daughter in a very short period, a period of of seven years by these four ladies. And um, the 11th son was Rachel's son. And Jacob loved Rachel the most. He loved Joseph the most, her son. And he doesn't even try to hide his favoritism. He heavily favors Rachel and Joseph. And he basically ignores the other 11 sons. The other 11 kids, there's 10 other sons and a daughter. And Jacob had no idea how much damage this favoritism was going to cause in his family for the rest of his life. His favoritism was a huge mistake, and we see that playing out in the chapters that pick up where we left off last week. Remember last week, Jacob had fled from the land where he picked up his wives back to the promised land, back to the land of Canaan. And when they get there, they settle down. In Genesis 34, I'll just try to recap quickly a couple of these chapters we're going to move through. Jacob's ignored children start hanging out with the Canaanites, these local pagan non-believers, which they really weren't supposed to be doing. His daughter Dinah is raped by a local Canaanite prince, a guy named Shechem. Jacob does nothing about this. He just completely ignores it. Meanwhile, his other ignored sons are really angry that their sister got raped and their dad's not doing anything about it. Well, this this prince, Shechem, he wants to marry Dinah. And so he makes a proposal to Jacob, and Jacob says nothing. The brothers, on the other hand, they're like, yeah, yeah. We'll cut you a deal, no pun intended. (laughs) They say, look, we're Israelites. God says we have to be circumcised. And so if you guys get circumcised, you and everybody in your village, then Dinah can marry Shechem and we can intermarry. Well, then this happens. Every male in their town was circumcised. But three days later, when the wounds were still sore... You know how that is. (laughs) Two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, the second and third oldest, who were Dinah's full brothers, took their swords and entered the town without opposition. Then they slaughtered every male there. Meanwhile, the rest of Jacob's sons show up. They find everybody dead, and they plunder the town because their sister had been defiled there. Woo! Well... Once again, in Genesis 35, Jacob finds his family fleeing for their lives. They have to leave town immediately, even though his favorite wife, Rachel, is pregnant. Not a good time to make a journey. On the way, she goes into labor and dies, giving birth to Jacob's 12th and final son, Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother. Which, you know, you can imagine, Jacob... Is even more angry at these wives and these brothers that he never wanted, these sons he never wanted, and then on top of that, while Jacob is still grieving for his beloved wife Rachel, we read Genesis thirty-five twenty-two. Then Reuben, his oldest son, had intercourse with Bilhah, one of Jacob's other wives, Reuben's stepmom. Reuben, what are you doing, buddy? Good Lord. <laughs> Well, commentator Gordon Wenham says, it seems likely that Reuben's motives were more than sensual. He's the firstborn, by the way. By his act, he hoped to prevent Rachel's maid, Bilhah, succeeding Rachel as father's favorite wife. This is all a result of the dysfunctional favoritism that Jacob was showing to Rachel and her sons. Reuben resented that Jacob did not honor his mother, Leah. And so... Jacob's response to Reuben's treachery, he hears about it and does nothing. This guy is surprisingly passive. It's like no one exists except for Rachel and her one, now two sons. And now she's dead. And what what is left in his life? And so Joseph's childhood, let's just recap here. On the one hand, his dad loved him and taught him about God. But on the other hand, he's got a lot going against him. He's born into a family with four moms who hate each other and are fighting over who gets to have sex with dad. Then he's also got 10 older brothers who hate and abuse him, both verbally and physically, his entire life. Then as a six-year-old, they have to flee from not one, but two murderous uncles. Uncle Laban, they flee 450 miles from his wrath, and then they pull an all-nighter waiting for Uncle Esau, who's going to come and maybe kill them. That's pretty hard on a six-year-old, being moved around like that, fleeing for his life. Then, as a teenager, his sister's raped and his brother's massacre, a whole town. And then, while fleeing, he watches his mom die on the roadside, giving birth to his baby brother. And then, after his mom's funeral, his brother has sex with his stepmom to punish his dad. And you thought you had problems. (laughs) This guy's going to need some counseling. This guy's... (laughs) This guy's counselor is going to need some counseling (laughs) once he gets done with Joseph. And why do I bring this up? Two reasons. First of all, because some of us can relate to some parts of Joseph's past. And I bring that up because I want you to have hope that God can overcome any starting point. No one is doomed from where they're coming from. The power of God can stabilize anyone and make them a man or a woman of faith. Two, because things are not looking good for Jacob's family. If the promised one, God promised a Savior would come someday, and they're going to come through the line of Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob. And yet Jacob's kids seem as, as awful as they can be. The family is so dysfunctional, it's on the verge of imploding. They're just becoming like the Canaanites, And if they just assimilate with the Canaanites and take on their ways, how is God going to bring about the Savior of the world? What is God going to do to protect them from assimilating into their surrounding culture? And I can guarantee you, if you don't know the story of Joseph, you have no idea the answer to that question. And this brings us to what I think is the most magnificent and probably unexpected story in the entire Bible, the story of Joseph. Genesis chapter 37. This is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17, he often tended his father's flocks. He was working at that time for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. Dad, guess what Gad was doing today? (laughs) He was playing kick the sheep again. He was like, oh, man, I hate that guy. <laughs> so Joseph the Tattletale. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. One day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. This is the famous coat of many colors that some older translations take this as. Really, we don't know what the Hebrew word means. But what's clear is the robe signaled out Joseph as somebody special. Somebody who dad favored. Somebody who dad was grooming to take over the leadership and receive the blessing and the birthright in this family. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They were suffering. Under Jacob's really bad fatherhood, his ignorance of them. They just wanted love from their dad. And they hated Joseph because they saw that he had it. They couldn't even say a kind word to him. You ever been so, so jealous of someone that you can't even talk to them? That's how his brothers felt about him. Well, to make matters worse, one night Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Here's the dream. Listen, he says, I had a dream. We were out in the field tying up our bundles of grain, and suddenly my bundle just stood up and. Your bundle's all gathered around and bowed low before mine. And they're like, ugh. You think you'll be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? Ridiculous. Impossible. And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and because of his words. They hate him three times in five verses. And now... They can't even stand to hear the guy talk. You ever ever hated him and envious of someone so much that you can't even stand to listen to them talk? Soon Joseph had another dream. This guy's a little dense. (laughs) Again, he told his brothers about it. Hey, I had another dream. The sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowed before me. (laughs) Hey, there's 11 of you guys. Well, this time he told his father as well, and his father scolded him. He said, look, what kind of dream is that? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? Come on. But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. Two responses here. Jacob, on the other hand, you know, he didn't like the dream any more than the brothers did. But he wondered, what is God doing here? He wondered. Jacob had had some dreams of his own, we saw last time. He wondered, is God doing something here? On the other hand, the brothers just burned with hatred and envy, jealousy toward Joseph. And I want to talk just a little bit about envy before we go on here. Envy, what does it mean? The dictionary says this, painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another, joined with a desire to possess that same advantage. Yeah, it's not just noticing their advantage. If if that was the case, we could just notice the advantage and be just so happy for you. Whoa, you had that great dream, Joseph. Wow, you've really had a lot of advantages. No, it's not just that. Envy takes it a step further And with envy, the good fortune of this person brings me pain. And I resent them. And I want what they have. It's noticing with a very dark twist put on it. And maybe some of you know what envy feels like. In fact, I'd be willing to bet there's been some time in the last week or two where you've felt envy toward someone else. You've noticed an advantage. It brought you pain, made you feel resentment, and even a desire to have what they have. You know, this could be romance envy. Where you're like, oh, I'm just so happy that that guy I liked asked you out. <laughs> Materialistic envy. Yeah, I don't know. My parents just bought me the new iPhone 8. I mean, I had an iPhone 7, and that was fine, but I guess, you know, never hurts to have a new iPhone. Ugh. I have a touch screen. (laughs) There's appearance envy. They're like, well, I I don't know. I just eat whatever I want. I just can't gain any weight. I got this six pack. I don't even work out. (laughs) There's career envy. Oh, you got that internship. I'm so happy for you. Oh, you got a job with benefits. And you make more than I do, even though I have a college degree, and you don't. There's ability envy. The person's just so smart. They don't study for anything, and they ace all their tests. They can do everything better than you. There's even ministry envy. Christians, I've heard of this a long time ago, one, this one person. This Christians, <laughs> they get envious of the results that other people get serving God. Can you believe that? There are people like this out there. And it burns, and you just it it, it interferes. It wrecks, It's a wrecker of relationships. It's a destroyer of your own emotional life. These all take something good, and they give it a very dark twist. Where I, I, I dislike you, I resent you. I'm in pain whenever I see your good fortune, and I can't rejoice. I just want, and I when when I see your happiness, I feel sorry for myself. You know what that feels like here's the thing that the brothers don't realize their problem isn't really with joseph joseph wasn't the one that made himself born to that favorite wife joseph wasn't the one that was picked by god for a very important role in god's plan what they don't realize is they have a problem with god That's what the envious person does not realize. Your problem is not with that other person. They can't make you smarter. They can't make you better looking. They can't make you luckier. No. Your problem is with God, who's arranged your life the way that he has. And what these brothers should have been doing is talking to God about God's plan for their lives, talking to God about how they were feeling about this, but instead they were too busy hating Joseph. God had a role for Joseph. God had a role for these brothers too, believe it or not. In some cases, maybe better than the role Joseph got. But they weren't worried about that. They were too worried about what what Joseph had and what they didn't have and how they resented what he had and what they didn't have. They should have been talking with God about how they felt and instead they were passing judgment on Joseph. And what that is going to lead to, unchecked, is it's going to lead to them doing something that they will regret For the rest of their lives. And envy may do that. It may do that for you. Soon after this, Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flocks up at Shechem. That's the area where they slaughtered all those Canaanites. This is a recipe for disaster. When they'd been gone for some time, Jacob said to Joseph, Hey, go see how your brothers and flocks are getting along. Go check on them, Joseph. Joseph then come back and bring me one of those reports that you're always bringing me. So Jacob sent him on his way. Well, Joseph heads out. This is 60, 70 miles to where his brothers are with the flocks. And Joseph's brothers, they see him coming over the hills. They recognized him. Even in the distance, probably could see his coat (laughs) glistening in the sun. And as he approached, they made plans to kill him. They'd had enough. They couldn't stand it any longer. Here comes the dreamer, they said. They can't even say his name. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. Yeah, they would dig these, these deep pits in the rock, 10 feet or more, in order to hold water in these dry areas, hold, catch rainwater. And uh, sometimes the cisterns would crack, though, and they, would, they couldn't hold any water. And so it made a bad water storage pit, but it'd make a great little jail cell. Great place to dump a dead body and act like it was an accident. We'll tell our father, a wild animal has eaten him. Yeah. And we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Surely this will put a stop to his dreams. But when Reuben heard of their scheme, he came to Joseph's rescue. And he said, no, let's not kill him, guys. Why should we shed any blood? Let's let's just throw him in this empty cistern here in the wilderness. Then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. Well, he was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. Maybe trying to make up for the whole stepmom incident. (laughs) So when Joseph arrived, his brothers attack him. They surround him. They probably beat him until he can't resist anymore. They rip off the beautiful robe he was wearing. Maybe leaving him wearing nothing. And then they took him and they throw him in the cistern. Final act after 17 years of envy, they just couldn't take it anymore. And this just made sense to these guys. Well, then they get hungry, so I guess it's time to eat after you plotted your brother's murder. (laughs) And just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and they saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. And Judah said to his brothers, Guys, look, what are we going to gain by killing our brother? We just have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders that are coming through. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. We can't kill our brother. Let's just sell him into slavery. And they all agreed. It sounded like a good plan. Judah really takes over leadership in this family. And so when the Ishmaelites, who are Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers, they pull him out of the cistern, and proceed to bargain for a good price for their brother. This is is Joseph's last image of his brothers, standing there naked, battered, bleeding, totally ashamed, while they're going back and forth on how many pieces of silver he's worth. We find later that he was weeping, he was pleading for his life, and his brothers just turned a deaf ear to him. Finally, they settle on 20 pieces of silver, which we find was exactly the price of a slave in the first half of, the, 20, of, the, of the, the second millennium B.C., which is a good point for the historicity of this account. And so they sell him for 20 pieces of silver. So I guess each brother got two pieces. Hope it was worth it, guys. Two pieces of silver in exchange for this, which is going to be on your, on your soul. It's going to sit there right on your conscience for the rest of your life. These guys are never going to forget about this. And the traders took him away to Egypt, just like that. From favorite son to slave on the way to Egypt. Well, the brothers kill a young goat and dip Joseph's robe in its blood. And then they sent the beautiful robe to their father with this message. Look what we found. Doesn't this robe belong to your son? Their father recognized it immediately. Notice they phrased it so they weren't technically lying. Yes, he says, this is my son's robe. And Jacob's just heartbroken. A wild animal must have eaten him. Joseph has clearly been torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes, and he dressed himself in burlap. And he mourned deeply for his son for a long, long time. His family all tried to comfort him, including the brothers, in like the ultimate act of hypocrisy... Trying to comfort dad about his son who they sold into slavery. Who they killed for all they know. But dad refused to be comforted. He said, no, I will go to my grave mourning for my son. And then he would weep. And when a father loses his son, he never forgets. So we'll leave leave Joseph's family here. We'll get back to them next week. For now, we follow Joseph to Egypt. Genesis 39. When Joseph was taken to Egypt, he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Imagine that. You get to Egypt, then you're marched up right up onto the auction block. There's people bidding for you in a language you don't even understand. Finally, he's purchased by sort of a high-ranking dude potiphar an egyptian officer potiphar was captain of the guard for pharaoh the king of egypt i guess if he's going to get sold to somebody he's at least sold to to a man of wealth a man of importance and it says that even in egypt yahweh god was with joseph yes he was with joseph even there as a slave And what does that mean? Does that mean Yahweh was with Joseph and so he set him free from slavery and he went back home and he was reunited with his family and they lived happily ever after? No. He was with Joseph as a slave and so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. He was a great slave. Very successful. Potiphar noticed this. He noticed uh, Joseph's success. He realized that Yahweh was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. And this pleased Potiphar, so he soon made Joseph his personal assistant. So he gets promoted right up the ranks, right up to the point where he's second in command in Potiphar's household. And at this point, oh, it says he put him in charge of his entire household, everything he owned. At this point, Potiphar knew two things about Joseph. Joseph was a believer in Yahweh, and Joseph was the best worker he had. How many of your coworkers can say the same thing about you if you're a Christian here tonight? Yeah, it's not just that he saw Joseph was successful, but he knew that he knew Yahweh was with Joseph. He knew Yahweh was blessing him. What is, what is Joseph doing in, in slavery? He's telling Potiphar about God. And he's trying to serve as best he can. That's what he does in this suffering. It's not what you would expect. You'd expect somebody feeling sorry for themselves, and yet Joseph remains remarkably faithful to God during this turn of events. Well, Potiphar wasn't the only guy to notice some things about Joseph. We learned Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man, And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. I don't know how long she was looking at him for. Maybe a year. She doesn't seem like the kind that would wait around that long. If you give her a year on this, he's only 18 when the next events happen. Finally, she makes her move. Come and sleep with me. (laughs) Joseph, I want you so bad. Come on. Right now, my master's not home. Just me and you. It'll feel so good. All right, uh, Joseph's an 18 year old male, he's single. She is aggressive, powerful, she's probably hot. She's married to a rich, powerful dude, so she's probably hot. And when you get 18-year-old male plus any woman who wants to have sex, that's usually an explosive combination there. Come on, come on. (laughs) Okay, that pun was not intended. (laughs) And here, his dad, you know, his dad, it looks like his dad had actually taught him some things about God's view of sex. That it's saved for a lifelong commitment within biblical marriage. He'd seen some of the problems in his own family people didn't respect God's view of sex and yet at the same time he's got so many excuses nobody's gonna know literally no one is here who knows him he can do whatever he wants he's also he could be like God well you know where were you when I got sold into slavery but what does Joseph do it says he refused her proposition look he said my master trust me with it." everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He's held back nothing for me except you because you're his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. And so what does he do? He refuses temptation and he tells her about God. But Mrs. Potiphar doesn't give up that easily. <laughs> she keeps putting pressure on Joseph day after day. Little whispers here, little proposals there. Uh, He refused to sleep with her, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. There's some wisdom for you, fleeing sexual immorality. But, you know, she's the master's wife. I mean, there's only so much you can do. And finally, one day, when no one else was around, and things were a little too quiet, there's a trap here that Mrs. Potiphar has set. He went in to do his work. She came and grabbed him by the cloak, and she demanded, Come on, sleep with me now! Well, Joseph tore himself away, and he left the cloak in her hand. That's how tight of a grip she had on him as he ran from the house. And when she saw she was holding his cloak, and he had fled. She can't believe her eyes. I don't think anybody's resisted her in the past. And so she called out to her servants first who probably didn't like Joseph anyway, because he was getting all the attention. And she's like, eek, eek, help. Soon all the men came running. Look, my husband's brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us Egyptians. He came into my room to rape me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream, he ran outside and got away, but he left his cloak behind with me. See, here's proof that my story is true. She kept the cloak with her until her husband came home. And when he got home, she told him her story, the same thing, the same lie. Well, Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. And he took Joseph and he threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held. And there, Joseph remained. Now, this normally would have been a capital offense, attempting to rape the master's wife. But you get the sense that Potiphar knew what kind of guy Joseph was, and he knew what kind of woman his wife was. And I think when he says he was furious, you wonder if he was more angry that he was losing such a good worker in Joseph. And so he throws him in jail. We can also add a few more tragedies to Joseph's list now that I rattled off earlier. He's now been a victim of human trafficking, sexual harassment, sexual assault, slander, wrongful termination, and unjust incarceration. The list just keeps getting longer and longer. His counseling bills are going through the roof right now. (laughs) But Yahweh was with Joseph in the prison, and he showed him his faithful love. And so Yahweh got him out of jail, and he went home to his family, and they wept and were living happily ever after? No, he was with him in prison. And so Yahweh made him a favorite with the prison warden. He was a great prisoner. The the warden's favorite. In fact, before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. (laughs) He's quickly promoted once again to second in command over everything under the warden. And what happens next? Well, nothing for a long time. Joseph remains in prison until age 28. If he spent a year up in Potiphar's house, that means another decade languishing in this dungeon. To make matters worse, we learn in chapter 40, verse 3, he was right under the nose of Potiphar and his wife the whole time. It says some other guys get thrown in prison where Joseph was, which was in the palace of the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And so he spends a year up in Potiphar's household and another 10 down in Potiphar's dungeon. Was Mrs. Potiphar coming down, taunting him? There he is, unjustly incarcerated, seeming like life has dealt me the rawest deal that I could have gotten. Well, a decade goes by. He's 28 now. He's not the man he was when he was first captured by his brothers. And it says sometime later, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker offended their royal master. Pharaoh became angry with these two officials. And so he put them in the prison where Joseph was. Yeah, the cupbearer was the guy that he would drink the wine before Pharaoh drank it in case anybody was trying to poison Pharaoh. And so it was a pretty good job until it wasn't. While they're in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker each had a dream one night, and each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph saw them the next morning, he noticed they both looked upset. And he says, why do you look so worried today? He asked the prisoners this question. (laughs) And they replied, man, we both had dreams last night, but we're so sad because no one can tell us what they mean. And Joseph's like, oh, poor babies, you've been in prison for a few days. I know you had a dream. (laughs) No, he says this. He says, interpreting dreams is God's business. Go ahead and tell me your dreams. What does Joseph do? Is he feeling sorry for himself? No. He tells him about God, and he offers to help. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream first. And as soon as he gets done, Joseph says, this is what the dream means. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position as his chief cupbearer. And please, he says, remember this. Remember me. Please do me a favor when things go well for you, sir. Mention me to Pharaoh so he might let me out of this palace. I was kidnapped from my homeland, the land of the Hebrews. Now I'm here in prison. I did nothing to deserve it. I was wronged. Well, the chief baker said to Joseph... That sounds like a good interpretation. I had a dream too, you know. He tells him to Joseph, and Joseph says, Well, here's what your dream means, sir. Three days from now, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and impale your body on a pole. (laughs) Then birds will come and peck away at your flesh. (laughs) So it's not like Joseph's just telling everybody, what they want to hear so he can get out of jail. He tells these guys two separate interpretations of their similar dreams. And Pharaoh's birthday came three days later and he prepared a banquet and he's singing happy birthday to me and he restored the chief cupbearer to his former position and he uh, impaled the chief baker. Joseph Joseph had predicted when he interpreted his dream. Savage. (laughs) Well, Joseph... Here's what happened, I'm sure. He's eagerly waiting by the gate for his release. You know, for the rest of that day, every time he hears the clink of the key, he's looking up, he's looking for the cupbearer. Is it time? Nothing. Goes to bed that night thinking, surely tomorrow will be the day. The next day, every time he hears the clink of the key in the lock, he's looking up, he's popping up from his his jail bed. He's like, is it time? Oh, no, it's not him. By the end of the first week, I think he still had a lot of hope. After a month, he probably was feeling pretty cynical. I don't know at what point he realized the sad reality that Pharaoh's chief cupbearer forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. After 11 years in jail, he thinks he's finally caught a break, and it turns out he hadn't. And two more years go by. Two more years in jail. Two more years thinking about what happened to him. Two more years wondering, where is God in my life? From the end, looking back, we see it's a good thing two more years went by. It's a good thing this guy forgot. In fact, God might have made him forget. This may have been divine amnesia. (laughs) Because if he remembers Joseph as soon as he gets up there... Pharaoh's probably not going to care about this dream interpreter. And the best that's going to happen to him is he might get out of prison. But by waiting another two years, God arranges circumstances so that in the fullness of time, Joseph's dream comes to Pharaoh's attention. And sometimes when we're waiting and we're suffering, it's not just what God's doing in our lives. God might be arranging some other things. You're not the only one in God's plan. And he's working things to line things up just right, for the way he wants them. And one day, everything will change in Joseph's life. There's a morning where he will wake up, second in command of the prison. And when he goes to bed that night, he will be second in command of a much larger jurisdiction. Genesis 41. Two full years later, Pharaoh had a dream that he was standing on the bank of the Nile River. And in his dream, he saw seven fat, healthy cows come up out of the river. And here's what happens in this dream. On the one hand, you've got these seven fat cows. (laughs) They're like, moo! And they just are luxurious. (laughs) But then he's watching, and then seven more cows come up. These are not looking too good. These are scrawny, ugly cows. And then he watches in horror as the scrawny cows eat the fat cows. It's like cow cannibalism. But they don't get any fatter when they eat the fat cow. I don't know how it works. It's like a clown cow. And then Pharaoh wakes up and he's like, Oh, it was just a dream, Pharaoh. Just a dream. Falls back asleep. He gets another dream. He sees seven glorious, fat heads of grain. He sees these wheat stalks. They come up and they are luxuriant. And then he sees seven gross, scrawny stalks of wheat. And they spring up, and somehow the seven scrawny ones eat the seven fat ones. And Pharaoh wakes up and he's like, oh! And he's really disturbed. The next morning (laughs) and so he calls for all the magicians and wise men of egypt and he says here's my dream and not one of them can tell him what they meant and finally the king's chief cupbearer is sitting there and he's thinking oh man now i remember you know today i've been reminded of my failure he told pharaoh pharaoh's like what Some time ago, you were angry with the chief baker and me, rightfully so. And you imprisoned us in the palace of the captain of the guard, which I very much appreciated. (laughs) I really deserved it. Well, one night, the chief baker and I each had a dream. Each dream had its own meaning. And there was a young Hebrew man with us in prison. He interpreted the dreams. His interpretation came exactly true. And I forgot. Sorry. Well, Pharaoh... Sent for Joseph at once. He's so disturbed and so desperate. Joseph was quickly brought from the prison. And after he shaved and changed his clothes because the Egyptians hated hairy people, and so they would have like shaved him down, okay? (laughs) Clean clothes on him. He went in and stood before Pharaoh. And so after 13 years, 4,475 days as a slave and as a prisoner, This is how it all ends. At once, quickly, he's standing before Pharaoh. He couldn't have seen that one coming. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one here can tell me what it means. I hear that when you hear about a dream, you can interpret it. (coughs) So what's Joseph going to say? Don't mess it up, dude. It's beyond my power to do this, Joseph replied. But God can tell you what it means. and set you at ease. What does Joseph do? He tells him about God, and he offers to help. And so Pharaoh told Joseph his dreams. And Joseph responded, both of Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God is telling Pharaoh in advance what he's about to do. The seven healthy cows and the seven healthy heads both represent seven years of prosperity. The thin scrawny cows that came up later and the seven thin heads of grain withered by the east wind, these represent seven years of famine. The next seven years will be a period of great prosperity throughout the land of Egypt, Pharaoh. But afterward, there will be seven years of famine so great that all the prosperity will be forgotten in Egypt. In fact, famine will destroy this land. Therefore, Joseph makes a suggestion, goes out on a limb, Pharaoh should find an intelligent wise man and put him in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Have him gather all the food produced in the good years that are just ahead. He knew exactly what the tax rate was. He knew exactly how to organize this thing in order to to be out ahead of this famine. And where did he learn to do that? The years in Potiphar's house, running his household. The years down in the dungeon, running the prison, under Potiphar's household. That way there'll be enough to eat when the seven years of famine come to the land of Egypt. Well, Pharaoh's impressed. And he says, Can we find anybody else with this like this man so obviously filled with the Spirit of God? He could see the Holy Spirit in Joseph. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one else is as intelligent or as wise as you are. Which is funny, because Pharaoh thought he was God, and Joseph is telling him God is going to reveal the dream. He says, yeah, God, God has revealed this to you. In fact, you will be in charge of my court. All my people will take orders from you. Only I, sitting on my throne, will have a rank higher than yours, Joseph. I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. And he was 30 years old when he began serving in the court of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. His career just started looking a lot better. (laughs) His life just started looking a lot better. But from God's perspective, it didn't look any better. God saw all of this in advance. God knew what he was doing in Joseph's life. And I'd like to leave Joseph here on the the throne of Egypt. And that's where we'll pick up the story next week. But right now, I just want to draw a couple of lessons from the life of Joseph. You know, this looks like a story about envy and a story about responding to suffering. But really... The two lessons are one and the same. When Joseph's brothers suffered, they viewed it only from their perspective. And it led to envy and all sorts of other evil. They were in pain. They took things into their own hands. They never even wondered about God's plan for their lives. They were too busy being angry about Joseph's life and how Joseph's life looked like it was turning out. And they hated him and they resented him for it. And they tried to kill him. They tried to do away with Joseph, but they failed. Not because Joseph ended up on the throne of Egypt. They failed either way. They stained their hands with his blood. And that guilt and their bitterness toward him would remain on their conscience for the rest of their lives. They were throwing themselves into their own prison of bitterness and envy when they did what they did to Joseph. I mean, what if God had told them the future? God had plans for their lives as well. What if he said, Levi, there's going to be a tribe that will come from you. All the priests are going to come from your line. And Judah, you who came up with the plan to sell him, you are going to lead this family. The mantle of leadership will pass to you. The kings will come from your line. And one day, the Savior will come from your seed, a Savior who will die on the cross for the sins that you're committing against your brother right now as well as many others. What if he told them that? Would they have stopped? They couldn't have known God's plan for their life. They couldn't have known that God's plan for Joseph's life is going to be the thing that rescues them from starvation. No, God doesn't work that way. God doesn't tell you it all in advance. God says, "Will you trust me right now where you're at. Joseph's brothers were trying to get from their family what they could only get from God. They were trying to get from their family what they could only get from God. Security, stability, significance, safety, approval, I wonder if some of us have the same problem. Trying to get from our family what we can only get from God. And God's offer to you is a lot better than he offered to them. He says you can come into his family. You could be adopted as his son or daughter. You can have a relationship with him where you can call him daddy. Where he can take all things in your life and work them for good. We can guarantee you eternity with him. On the other hand, Joseph looked at his suffering from God's perspective. He knew God was always there, whether he was in Canaan or whether he was in Egypt. and He didn't behave any differently no matter where he was. He knew God's way was the right way, whether he was the favorite son, a slave, a prisoner, or second in command of Egypt, standing before Pharaoh himself, the most powerful man in the world. Joseph told people about God and offered to serve them, no matter where he was in his life. And as a result, God did a mighty work in Joseph's life through his suffering. Joseph's brothers probably suffered more than him in this story. As we'll see next week, the havoc that's wreaked in their own lives. And third and finally, I'm going to make this assertion. As much as he's got going for him, he's not there yet. He's in the stage where he's trying to forget about what happened to him. And how do we know? A little preview for next week. He becomes second in command of Egypt. At what point does he go back and visit his family? Never. At what point does he go back and tell his grieving father, I'm alive? Never. Never. At what point does he even send a messenger back to his family to explain what had happened to him? To at least tell his dad. Never. Those are the sorts of things you can afford to do when you're second in command of the most powerful nation in the world. Make a couple hundred mile trip to Canaan. Joseph gets married and he has two sons. The first one he names Manasseh, which means forget. And he says... It's because I've forgotten all of my troubles in all of my father's household. Yeah, his first son he names Forget You Guys. His second son he names Ephraim, which says, God has blessed me here in the land of my affliction. Like God wasn't blessing him there. No, God was just as much at work in both places. Yeah, forgetting's not enough. You're going to need to forgive. And that's what we're going to see next week. Joseph and his brothers. The road to forgiveness. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.